Welcome to a modern nonprofit podcast powered by the charity CFO, your compass for creative solutions and running your nonprofit. I'm Tasha Anderson, your host and guide through this nonprofit maze. From fundraising to volunteer management, we've got your back. Join us each episode for fresh game-changing strategies that can make a real impact. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. I'm your host, Tasha Anderson. Uh, and today I bring a new friend, John Renard. John is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization that is called Who Lives? And we're going to dive into your story, John. Um, but before we begin, let me just do a shameless plug. This content is found by engagement. The more people that are subscribed, liking, engaging, sharing, the whole point of this podcast was designed to create resources and share new and innovative and modern ways of approaching running a nonprofit. So before we dive into the conversation, if you haven't engaged, shared, liked, rated, whatever you can do to support um, this podcast from having uh, a, a greater reach, having more people access, access us, make sure you do that on YouTube, Spotify, any, anywhere where you're listening to this content, um, please feel free to do that. Okay, now that I did that shameless plug, um, John, I want to go ahead and first of all, kind of introduce you and hear a little bit more about your story. As I mentioned, John, you are the founder, I always love talking to other fellow founders, and executive director of an organization called Who Lives. So let's just dive right in to that. How did you get started in the nonprofit world? Because everyone I talk to that starts a nonprofit never grew up thinking I'm going to be a leader or a founder of a nonprofit and this is my life destiny. So tell me how you got started in this space. Yeah, exactly. And I had the same story that my career path and, and you know, it, being a founder of a nonprofit was, was never in the, uh, uh, in the, in the playbook. Uh, but it started, it started with a trip that I took with my family. My son had been doing a couple of years of um, humanitarian and, and uh, missionary work uh, in Africa, specifically in Kenya and Tanzania. And um, he was kind of finishing up his uh, work. He came home and, and I, I was just curious about what he had been going through the last two years. My wife and I had traveled extensively through uh, Mexico, Central America, South America, but really hadn't ventured mm -hmm too far off of that path. And uh, so he took the opportunity to take my family over to, to Africa. And what I noticed when I first got there that Africa had a different type of poverty. Um, I was used to poverty. I, I spent you know uh, quite a bit of time in, in, in Mexico, Mexico City. And so I had seen poverty before, but I hadn't seen water poverty before. Mm -hmm. And I have six children. Too many, <laughs> three boys, three girls. I'm just teasing, and um, and I kept on putting my daughters in the place of these girls that I see working every morning, getting up at four or five a.m. to walk three or four miles to get dirty water to bring it back home, and then get ready to go to school. Mm. And it, it just it, it just struck a, a chord, right? It just struck a nerve, like a lot of people. That's how we, you know, it's just like, wow, this this is. There's got to be a better way. And so on the plane trip home, I kind of came away from that trip kind of angry that here we were, this is 2010, and we're still living like this. To be honest with you, I had no idea that people were still fetching water every single day of their lives. And, and I decided to do something. And the, the simplest for me was, man, if we could somehow fix the water problem, 
then almost by mm -hmm. default, we're going to fix half of the healthcare problem because we go visit mm -hmm. these healthcare centers and, and have the people there were there because of dirty water issues. Mm -hmm. And then I figured if they had clean water and they were healthy, then that would allow them to create opportunity, opportunity to go mm -hmm. to school, opportunity to go mm -hmm. to work, opportunity to be more engaged in the community because they're not spending mm -hmm. half or, or their entire day fetching water. So that actually sure. became the acronym for who lives. So it's water, health, and opportunity. And my gosh, it, that's 14 years ago. And it's uh, the time has flown. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Prior to this, my <laughs> wife and I owned nine real estate companies and would have four mm -hmm. to 600 employees at any time. And I'll be honest with you, that was a cakewalk. I thought that was so hard. <laughs> that was a cakewalk compared to yeah. running um, you know, a grassroots foundation like Who Lives. Mm -hmm. But that's how we got started. Well, thank you for validating all of the nonprofit leaders out there. And, and I love hearing that because it's it's so easy sometimes from the outside. I've served on boards. I currently serve on boards. And I'd be really careful just to assume it's that easy. It's yeah. not that easy. And especially compounded with some of the challenges you have. You're trying to run this organization to benefit communities that are halfway across the world. And, yes. and I'm sure you have other differences and in, in compliance or governmental or even just communities, culture differences yeah. and things like that. So. Um, let's dive in a little bit more into like what Who Lives does. And your story really, you know, I get a lot of people that reach out and, and, and want to share their kind of nonprofit story on the podcast. And and typically I just try to be really selective about that um, because I really want to share stories of people that have done really innovative things in yeah. either their operations or their um, just kind of their approach to leading a nonprofit that I think would be beneficial or at least something to consider for other nonprofits. So what really stood out to me about Who Lives is your operating model. You're not simply just raising money from the U.S. or other sources, right, to then ship money over to this, you know, these various communities. I know you originally said Africa, but you have a far greater reach than that that we can yes. dive into later. But you're not just funneling money from one source to the next or going into communities and telling people, Hey, this is, this is how it needs to be done. Tell me how your operating model is a little bit different or share, I guess, share, I already know how it's yeah. different, but you take a different approach than I'm just going to send you money to like fix your problem. Yeah. Yeah. Tasha, you, 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 hit the, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And um, you know, when I got into this space, it was, it was me volunteering my time. And so it was, I wanted to make a difference. And I think everybody wants to make a difference, but I, but I wanted to sure. solve problems. I, I didn't want to just put a bandaid on it. I didn't, I didn't, I'm not doing it for the accolades. I'm not doing it for my friends and neighbors. Oh, what a wonderful, you know, John, you know, no, I wanted mm -hmm. to solve the problems. And, and that was my only, my only goal. And so I think one thing that's kind of missing a lot of times in in our space is the 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 charge and the ability to innovate, and mm -hmm. and we we seem to be doing the same things over and over again, expecting mm -hmm. a different result, and we all know what that's called. And so <laughs> we did take a different approach, and and says the whole goal was how do we how do we solve the problems? And so one of the first things that uh, that came to me was how can we get more clean water to these uh, to these villages? And you're right. We're, we're now in 42 countries um, wow. and about 
30 of them are inside of um, Africa, about 28 actually inside of Africa. And the remainders are spread across the world. A lot of the islands, Haiti and, and Vanuatu and the Philippines, uh, Mexico, Central America, South America, um, wow. and even some um, you know communities uh, closer to home, uh, Belize and, and other locations, anywhere that there's a, a need for clean water. And, and, but as I was thinking about how can we do this, how can we do this? Um, literally in the middle of the night, this idea came to me for a human powered drill. I mean, it, like if we can create something that was so inexpensive that almost anybody can go and drill their own water well, well, that would be something. And so I think that idea was in my head. Literally in the middle of the night, I, I, I had this idea for the village drill, what we now call the village drill. I get up and I actually draw it out on the, on the kitchen table and this idea. Mm -hmm. And now I had never drilled a well before. I grew up in Southern California in the USA. And my water came out of a tap. Um, right. So I wasn't even positive what I was drawing. Um, and you know how dreams are sometimes, they fade pretty quickly. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, after, you know, probably 15, 20 minutes of doodling, I said, well, that's it. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> now, the, mm -hmm. the strange thing happened the next day when I got a call from the engineering department at our local university that I had attended. And uh, now I attended the finance. I, I wasn't, I didn't know where the engineering building was at. So right. <laughs> uh, my, my background is finance. And, um, but I had called the university about two and a half months earlier, um, just to ask a question about a brick making machine of all things. And mm -hmm. somehow, uh, when I left the message that got to the desk of, um, of the, the, the person who, who was in charge of what's called a capstone program. A capstone program mm -hmm. is where, you know, the senior year of a, of a university student is spent on a real life problem. And so the, this particular program had 32 projects. Mine was one of 32 projects, but he calls me and he, and he asked me if I have a project for him to work on. Now I didn't dare mm -hmm. tell him I had a dream the night before about this village drill, but I told yes. him I had this idea uh, for quite a while, hours and hours. <laughs> about mm -hmm. a human powered drill. And anyways, we got together. Uh, of course, it's a university. So you pay them some money to, to basically hire these students to take your mm -hmm. idea and make it a reality. And if you can see in the back, that's, a, uh, that's actually a half scale model of what we now call the village drill. And, wow. and so, but this is, this is innovation. This is what changes how we do things because prior to the, to the village drill, to drill a well and to have the power to get into the clean water, it would cost a village twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Well, they, mm -hmm. th there's no way a village in these developing countries could ever afford right. that, and so they had to rely on handouts. They had to rely yeah, on other people, true. other people's charity. But now, with mm -hmm. the mo with the um, innovation of the village drill, they can now put that put that well in for three or four thousand dollars. And now, mm -hmm. if you spread that up you know, uh, across the, the village, you know, that, you know, a well can service about a thousand people. Okay. On average, that's about 200 families. Well, if 200 families pay $20, okay, okay well, that's $4,000. That's enough to get a well. Now, if you take $20 mm -hmm. and you divide it out over 10 months, well, that's only $2 a month per family. And mm -hmm. so what we did was I'll say, okay, we'll give you the loan. We'll loan each family the $20 mm -hmm. and they'll pay it back at $2 a month. 
which is very affordable, even in the poorest of countries. Now, they always tell me, oh, they can't even afford to, they can. No, they can. They're they're buying things that are still not necessary. Uh, the number one thing, unfortunately, is alcohol. And they're spending more of that mm -hmm. on, on alcohol. So $2 a month, when you're making 4 to $6 mm -hmm. to $8 a day, $2 mm -hmm. a month is affordable. And so we created a program where now the, the people can do this themselves. In reality, that was the key to our growth is we went away from giving them something where now you're responsible for it and, and you have to maintain it mm -hmm. to where now they're buying it and they take the responsibility. Now they have the pride of ownership and now they'll maintain it and they'll take care of it and they'll cherish it. And that's made all the difference in the in the world in the in the water sector that um, that we mainly deal in. Tell me, I think I read on your website some villages that have even earned money off of these wells. Can you share some of that too? I thought that was really interesting. So to the point yeah. of, well, maybe they can't afford that, but there's been other creative ways for how these villages were able to pay for the, rather than just out of their own personal pockets. I'm curious right. about that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And that was another part of, of our, how do we make sure that everybody is involved? And so um, when we go to a village and, and we, and now I say we, what we have done is, is set up drilling teams in each of these countries. And it's actually the drilling teams that we train to go to the villages to go and do this. And the drilling team in that country is a self-sustainable business. They, mm -hmm. they totally live on their profit and, and or their losses. And so they have to, you know, they have to produce, they have to get clean walls because their reputation depends upon it. And so that's number one. Now, when they go to these communities, we want to make sure that everybody was involved. So the first thing that we tell them to do is, is have the village, there's going to be a certain percentage, let's just say 10% of the village who can't afford $2 a month. It's the grandmother who lost her children to AIDS and she has six right. grandchildren. Um, it's the, you know, the person who was in, uh, in an auto accident or, or, or you know, and, and can't work. So there's going to be a percentage of the village that, that can't do it. So now it's up to the village to either sponsor them or find something that they can do for the village. Mm -hmm. Second to that is um, we go in and we create some sort of an economy in every village that we go. Now that you have mm -hmm. clean water, what can you do with that clean water? Can you start mm -hmm. uh, a you know uh, a chicken program um, selling eggs and 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 poultry? Mm -hmm. Can you you know obviously fish comes to mind because you got clean water. Um, something interesting. I'll, I'll go back to those chickens. Um, when chickens drink dirty water, they'll lay two to three eggs a week. When they drink mm -hmm. clean water and are healthy, they'll lay six to seven eggs a week. So almost oh, immediately with clean water, you have, uh, you know, you have more income uh, coming in. Um, Food source too, yeah. If they're drinking clean water, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have an, a, an additional gestation period during during the year. So they'll have three as opposed to two. And, and other things oh. that, that, that come about because of clean water. Um, you know, farming, just, just small scale agricultural farming. If you add just 10% more water, so just a little bit more water than the rainwater that they're getting, you can increase your yields of your crops by 10, 15, 20, up to 50%. And 
and on, on some of the vegetables that, that are grown. So water, and especially clean water, makes a huge, huge difference in the economy. And so, so we introduce that. And then the last thing we do is we take care of that percentage that can work, but just don't have work. And, and let's go back to that, that family with the grandmother and the grandchildren. Well, let's say that they're, you know, the, um, you know, that they're still healthy and, and able to work. Well, mm -hmm. we'll give them the materials to create jewelry, just, just simple bracelets mm -hmm. and things of that nature that we can then either, you know, sell in our community or they, or we'll sell them to the, um, there's a different name for where they sell all these trinkets in all, all these different uh, countries, but we'll take them to, mm -hmm. we, we call it the Akamba. <laughs> we'll take it to mm -hmm. the Akamba and, um, and they can easily, you know, uh, by just doing a couple of bracelets a day, earn $2 a month in profit mm -hmm. selling these bracelets to the Akamba. And so now that family is totally engaged. And so when that water is ready, it's theirs and they just feel this mm -hmm. pride of ownership. So giving everybody ownership and giving them the opportunity to create income is, is a huge part of what Who Lives does and, and, and part of our everyday, everyday life is make give them that sense of pride. I love that. We talked a lot about just like tangible goods that can come out of, you know, clean water, but some of the other things that, you know, we probably take for granted with those of us that have accessible uh, access to clean water. It's just the time to get back. Like yeah. you were talking about before um, being able to work, um, being able to go to school, you know, solving some of these other, you know, challenges for these families and these communities that have had to spend most of their days getting water uh, rather yeah. than attending school for their children right. or finding other um, employment or, or other activities during the day other than sourcing water. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned, John, you're the finance person, you know, I'm a finance person, I always like to geek out, you know, operationally, how this all happens. So I have a couple questions. Uh, as it relates to that. So you have all these called micro loans out mm -hmm. to these various villages. And for nonprofits that have kind of pondered this idea of let's empower the people we're trying to serve, let's not make them feel like we're just trying to get handouts and solve their problems. But on an actual administrative scale, uh, I'm kind of curious how you all handle these in our world, um, in our currency, kind of micro payments, micro loans, like administratively, how do you track all of these? Is that hard to do? So we have actually simplified it. And, and the first thing that we did is that we removed who lives from, from the whole equation. So again, when the, the loans that we give, they're actually being given by the local drilling cooperative that's going to go and drill the wells. Mm. So when they're dealing with um, paying back their loan, you're not dealing with them paying back in their mind what they consider, oh, that it's a rich American NGO. Mm. They don't need my mm. money. And so, mm. you know, so it would be very, very difficult to have them pay back an NGO. And, and to be honest with you, it's part of the culture. And um, if I'm a rich uncle and I loan my nephew, you know, $500, I'm actually loaning it with a, like a wink and a smile. There really is not an expectation that he's going to pay me back because I'm the rich uncle. Sure. And and sure. certainly NGOs are the, are, the, are the same way. So as far as okay. they know, as far as the villages know, they're dealing with a local organization. And, mm. and that's huge. Um, and again, mm. uh, people say, well, you, how do you get your name out there? We don't care. <laughs> we <just laughs> that's not the solving point. the problem. Uh, we don't care that they, oh, matter of fact, we, um, 
you know, we do not allow them because, you know, after everything's kind of set up and it's done, um, we'll come back and visit and they find out about us and they're, oh my gosh, you guys are, you know, great and wonderful. And a lot of times they want to actually put our name like on their, on their water tower. And, and we don't let them because it's not ours. Mm. It's theirs. They paid mm. for it. It's theirs. Yeah. We may maybe give them a hand up, but it's theirs. And we want them to have that ownership. Mm. Every time they look at that pump, even though we financed it, we don't want them to think that, oh yeah, well, if it wasn't for them, we couldn't have done it. No, they, they could have mm. done it on their, on their own. And we want to give them that, that pride of ownership. And I'm telling mm. you, that is huge. I, I'm, I'm going to segue a little bit and, and give you two examples. Um, just last year, um, we had a, a group of people that we took down to kind of visit uh, the different schools and places that we were putting in some wells. And we visited mm -hmm. one school where the local politician paid for the well. So they got their well for free. And when we got there, it was amazing that all of a sudden the, the children, the teachers, the community was like saying, Oh, hey, thanks so much for this. Well, we, we, we know that you helped us out. Hey, we need a roof on our school. We need school books. We need this. We need that. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, a you know, just a, a give me, give me type of situation. Now, compare that to another village that we went to where they paid for it on their own. And we, we pull into there and all they want to do is show the show us what they have done oh. with that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, hey, you know. And, and they showed us mm -hmm. the, their, their garden center. They showed us um, um, how the, 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 the they have, the, the girls are now coming to school all day and then carrying mm -hmm. the water home with them uh, at at night. And mm -hmm. it was it was such a stark contrast between the entity that owned it and the entity that got it for free. And, and that's, mm -hmm. that's nearly 100% of the time. Um, we have to get away from this idea that we're helping them by giving them things. Because if you're a parent, you already know this. And I have six kids I mentioned. You already know what, when you give things away, when you just give them things, it, it just has such little value. But when they earn it, um, right. you know, it's, it's just it's a completely different feeling. Um, I, I have an argument with with my with my peers where the parents want to give their kids a brand new car, you know, a forty, fifty thousand yeah. dollar car. Well, I remember when I bought my first car on my <laughs> phone, and that sense of pride that I had when I when I bought this my first brand new car. Now I was into my mid twenties before I could do that. Sure. Had my parents given me a brand new car when I was in high school, that would not have had near the impact or near the sense of pride. And so what we're doing when we give things away, we're robbing them of that feeling that mm -hmm. I can Ownership. do this myself, this in this pride. And 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 they just end up waiting for other people to give and give and give. Where when you teach them that you can do this on your own, then that just multiplies. And they say, Well, what else can we do on our own? What else? and also mm -hmm. now they're improving their road. So now they can bring traffic in there. So if they're growing crops, they can get a truck in there right. to hold their their product away so they can sell it at a higher price instead of carrying it back, you know, out to the market on their backs where half of the, of the fruit might go to waste. So it's amazing mm. to see the progress of villages when you give them that opportunity to thrive mm. because you give them an opportunity to grow. So I've been thinking about this as you're, as you're speaking, you know, I think that's really interesting that you 
you don't really directly deal with the the installation or um, kind of the sale or the financing of the wells. Um, and I'm kind of curious. I, I think that's fascinating. I'm curious how you were able to like find and identify these teams and, and not just internationally, right? If we were to really start incorporating some of these principles or mindset. Um, and this isn't the first time I've had conversations about how do you um, get people that you're helping to feel a sense of co-ownership in this or, you know, a sense of pride in what they're trying to accomplish and things like that. I've been in the nonprofit space for close to 20 years and I've been part of many conversations of nonprofits trying to explore this. So I'm thinking, yes, you set up these community-based teams in these various countries how could we replicate something like that, say, in the United States within different communities? Um, you know, obviously, your situation is much different, but how do you take that same principle? I'm curious how you even did that or how you would find the people and trust the people, make sure that they're not, you know, creating some shark loan situation and yeah. taking advantage of the people you're trying to help and serve. But, but then also kind of on a bigger scale, how do we start exploring what that might look like um, in kind of our own communities here within the U.S. because we have so many, what's 1.7, 1.8 million nonprofits, something like that, they say. Um, and I think here, even in St. Louis, where I'm at, there's something like somewhere like 15,000 nonprofits just in, you know, the the kind of general St. Yeah. Louis city area. It's, yeah. it's really quite high in number. And, yeah. and I'm just thinking, how do you create that intimate relationship, you know, kind of an exchange of transaction rather than kind of more of a handout situation. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't know how to make that work. I'm sure you no, thought no. about it. I'm sure you've had conversations, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I've, I've consulted with, with a lot of groups on this principle because it is a new principle, especially here in the U S and, and here's the key. You, you need to ask yourself, am I empowering them or am I just solving a, uh, am I just putting a Band-Aid on something? So you, you separate into two um, into two categories. And I, and I sometimes I think of it like, um, you know, a, a storm has come in and, and ravaged the city. When a storm has come in and ravaged the city, you need to take care of the people and their immediate needs. And you don't worry a lot about, um, you know, loans and paying it back. So if there's a tornado that yeah. hits, hey, we're all going to come together. We're going to clean this up. We're going to clear the roads. We're going to help mm -hmm. the people get on their feet. Once sure. you take care of their immediate needs, the second question is, am I empowering them? And so many times we get this feeling of helping by giving, not realizing that we're actually creating more dependency every time we do that. And so even in um, the, the roughest of neighborhoods and the, and the roughest of situations, you have to ask the question, am I empowering them? Am I creating an opportunity for them to grow, to become self-sustainable? And if the answer is no, stop doing it. Please, please mm -hmm. stop doing it. Giving out handouts, what you are doing, you're just creating dependency. And it's just, we, we all know this intuitively. And, and a lot of times, you know, this can become kind of a toxic, you know, um, conversation, but it doesn't need to be. It's, it's just common sense. Um, mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm getting something for free, it doesn't have the same value as if I, uh, as if I earned this. 
And, you know, I learned this from, a, from uh, this is off the top of my head, so the story doesn't make sense. I apologize in advance. But I remember I would take my kids on vacation. And um, I remember at Disneyland, and also my kids were like, I want an ice cream. I want an ice cream. Now, we gave all the kids, they're, they're younger, and this is a few years ago, but we gave all the kids age appropriately somewhere between $10 and $20 just to spend. You don't have to ask mom and dad, right? Just you spend mm -hmm. it any way you want to. And so I remember we're at at, uh, at Disneyland and everybody wanted an ice cream. Daddy, give me an ice cream. And I said, I said, great, I'll pay for half. Okay. No one wanted an ice cream. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. even though it would have only cost them $2 instead of $4, which is ridiculous for an ice cream, but also they didn't want it. It wasn't that important. Right. And I said, hey, okay, I'll split it with you. Um and it's kind of weird that I take that aha moment back, you know, when I was a young parent um, yeah. you know, to, to, to what I do today um, internationally. Um, but it is um, let them decide how they're going to do it. Give them find ways to make them more profitable themselves and mm -hmm. and, and create that sense that. Of, of pride and, and self-reliance that that's what's missing mm -hmm. in our humanitarian work there's other things but but that's a big part of it that's a big part of it yeah i love that i, I love that as a fellow finance person the budgets i already have my nine-year-old on all kinds of um, budgets uh <laughs> we run yeah. on fiscal quarters and the anderson household <laughs> i do yeah. i do have one um, burning question for you yeah. because i mean certainly you're a nonprofit. so a lot of what we're talking about too i think is obviously an operational decision, a bit of a funding decision, and um, certainly uh, an approach to your program, right? More, more of like principles and how you want to yeah. run a program and the outcomes you hope to have um, and the impact you hope to have in the communities. And I, I love all of that. Um, I am curious because I am the accountant, I have to geek out and, and I, I don't know if anybody else listening is going to have this question. So we kind of open this up. I really love this operating model and so many nonprofits I've worked with have tried to explore more of an earned income model, not just um, for purposes of being self-sustaining and relying less on donations because of the fluctuation yeah. and the strings attached and all of the things, right? Um, so obviously a financial and operational impact, but also for a lot of the same kind of things that you've talked about, uh, you know, how do we stop, how do we stop robbing people of feeling like a sense of accomplishment or pride or yeah. ownership and what they're either receiving or, or accomplished. Right. So I'm very curious as a financial person, how much of your funding, if you don't mind sharing, um, is made up of some of this earned income and, and how much of it is fundraised? Because I know you still supplement many wells. Obviously you have a right. fundraising need still for your organization. How much of that is earned through, um, through the, the payments or the, um, yeah, the purchase price yeah. of these yeah. villages and how much do you still have to fundraise? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're probably less than 20% of our income is coming from the repayments of these of these loans. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the, the good news is it's gone from 4% to 8 to 12 okay. to 22, you know, and so... Wow, okay. So... Right now we have, and, and and that's because of lessons that that we've learned, and and okay. how to make it financially worthwhile for the groups that are collecting the funds um, in these different countries. Um, mm -hmm. there, there has to be a financial incentive for them to to do so, 
And so the way it, it typically works is um, the the groups will go and, and, and get a contract to drill a, drill a well. Now they're going to need four thousand mm-hmm. dollars to drill that well, as we talked about before. And so yeah. we, you know, so we'll give them the uh, the four thousand. Basically, they tell the community, okay, we're we're loaning you the, these funds. The, the community never mm-hmm. touches the money, but the but mm-hmm. the uh, the the drilling group says, okay, you know, we're going to fund this for you. You need to pay us back. Well, we have now. Um, where before we only had one group that that was even in the 80s on, on paying back their loans. Now we have about about half the groups that are in that 60 to 80 percent payback. Um, mm. Which I don't know. If, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot. That's huge. It, it is. Mm-hmm. It is huge. The um, the the strides that that we're making and and the way it works. They actually never send the money back to us. But let's say that a group collects, let's say they have five wells and everybody's paying back their loan. Um, mm-hmm. That group has collected, let's say, $2,000 that month. Well, the next month they're going to do another well. Instead of, a, instead of us having to send them $4,000, mm-hmm. they have already collected $2,000. So now we only have to send them $2,000. Send $2,000. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so basically yeah. your programmatic expenses are going down, going down while down. your impact yes. is going up, right? Yeah. And and yeah. we're working oh, on yeah and and again obviously the goal is to make it completely self sustainable and right. and and where it, it's it's fun to see that that growth because I, I'm telling you if we were just collecting tennis shoes from everybody and then passing them out and and mm-hmm. everybody says oh hey thanks for I mean it'd be so much easier what we're doing is not easy right um, right and and people have to know that. And, and you have to be okay with failure. You have to be okay with, mm-hmm. yeah, that didn't work or, or yeah, that mm-hmm. had a, that had a different impact than we were hoping for. Yeah. That opened mm-hmm. up an opportunity you, you had mentioned for somebody to do, um, you know, to do a, 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 you know, a loan and, and, and enforce, you know, um, either high interest or more mm-hmm. penalties or, or, you know, favors, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah. You know, we live in a, in a, in a, you know, in a world where, you know, if I give you something, I want something in return. And and there's uh, mm-hmm. women who have been taken advantage of in order to get a loan, mm-hmm. you know. And so mm-hmm. you, you have to be very, very, very aware and cautious and keep right. your antennas up and and look for those things, look for those unintended consequences um, yeah. all the time and and pivot when, when you notice those things. So we're no way are we perfect yet. But I love the fact that we're getting better and better and that we have now many communities that are paying their loans mm. back, um, you know, at, at 80 percent or above. Yeah, that's which incredible. Is higher than what Americans pay back on their credit cards. And so, <laughs> um, so again, I, I, you, we're, um, we're doing OK. You, you know, I've heard so many times with working with nonprofits that our goal would be that there's no need for us to exist. And it yeah. sounds like maybe you're on your way, John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe someday you can retire and say, I'm I want my life back. back. <laughs> <laughs> Says every yeah. nonprofit leader ever, for sure. Yeah, well, John, this yeah. has been an incredible conversation. I, I love hearing that. Thanks for being transparent about your story. And I especially love that you have to be okay with failing. Um, I think yeah. that's every entrepreneur spirit. Um, I think we need more of that in the nonprofit space and the grace to allow people to fail because that's how we come up with innovative ways of solving real problems. So this has been such an awesome conversation, John. Thank you again for your transparency and your openness and sharing your story and the cool way um, that you've been able to um, 
somehow figure out the impossible. <laughs> I'm sure that was no easy feat. I, I can relate to that. So um, thank you again for being on. I appreciate it. Tasha, it's been my pleasure. What a great platform you have here. And I, I appreciate the time to, to share my thoughts. Thanks again, Tasha. Thanks again. Okay, everybody, like I said, if you have not had a chance to subscribe or to share our content, please do. Until next time, friends, we'll see you later. That's all we have for you today. Once again, I'm Tasha Anderson with the Charity CFO, and this is A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to A Modern Nonprofit Podcast on all major streaming platforms so you will stay notified for when the latest episode drops, which will help you stay in the know about anything nonprofit related. Also, join our community on Facebook by searching for A Modern Nonprofit Podcast and follow us on all of our social media accounts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.